Vamos lá. Hey everybody, welcome to Growing Up Fishes Podcast, episode 209. This week we have Robbie Vincent. Robbie and I used to work together at the Aquaponics Source and we had worked on a whole bunch of stuff that you guys never got a chance to see and a whole bunch of stuff we did and a whole bunch of other cool experimentation that we got a chance to work on and uh, he's uh, uh, here joining us today. Thanks a lot, Robbie. Thanks for having me. We also got Marty. How's it going, Marty? Hey, what's up, guys? How are you doing? And uh, I'm Steve, your host, as always, uh, with Potent Ponics. So, um, Robbie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and then uh, a little bit about uh, uh, we could start getting into some of the cool stuff that uh, we, we worked on and some of the interesting things that uh, you've had experience with. It's a pretty big area there. <laughs> I am uh, Robbie Vinson. I've been a plumbing and heating contractor most of my life. I'm 53 and my W-2s go back till I'm nine. So it's over 43 years of plumbing experience so far. Plumbing and heating in Colorado. A lot of cooling as well. Done some interesting things in that field, cooling houses with groundwater, with radiant slabs of concrete done it with chillers, with AC chillers, and done it with groundwater, always more success with the earth energy than man's energy. Now I've, uh, I'm working on one right now for a hemp farm. A year ago, I put in 7,000 square foot grow area of two foot deep, three quarter inch Wurzbow heating tubes. So it's PEX radiant heating two feet deep below the plant grow beds in the dirt. And then uh, the pathways also have that, but only about a foot deep in this greenhouse. And it's all hooked to propane and they're burning propane like crazy. Now they're on our second year of trying to cool. They're having real troubles cooling it with what they're doing. And I'm doing a test system. Some of this greenhouse has a slab, probably a third of the building is slab. A third of it is this grow area. The slab area has separate zones and I've got a small zone that's about 30 by 30. I'm going to take the water from that zone and circulate it through the ground outside of the greenhouse on the north side of the building. We've got an eight foot by eight foot by eight foot deep hole that we've just put 60 foot of two inch corrugated stainless steel tubing in. That's just corrugated stainless steel gas piping comes with plastic coating on it. Strip off the coating and it gives a huge surface area and excellent temperature transfer. So I'm just, it's just a big coil we buried in a big square hole for now for a test to do this little 30 by 30 room. And I'm still haven't got that plumbed out yet. It's just about done. We've got the stainless in the ground. I've still got some plumbing to do there. But the corrugated stainless steel is what I was using in the aquaponic fish heaters. We had the instantaneous hot water heater that just fires on demand. The pump was turned on, 12, little 12 volt solar circulating pump turned on with digital temperature controller. That's what fired the pump. Heater fired um, and then the heat exchange took closed closed water system inside of the fish tank is what would heat the fish tanks. That's how mine's cooled right now or heated right now here at the house out there in the hoop house. 
And you used to used to run that loop as well with the solar water heaters, right? So explain to people how. Uh, yes. Well, I guess before we move on to that, why don't you talk a little bit more about the 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 heaters? So for people trying to heat large, especially large aquaponic systems, or even people trying to heat large soil beds, uh, I know um, uh, uh, Josh Rutherford um, actually D Dutch Blooms uh, actually does this uh, with a tankless water heater underneath his grow beds to heat his soil up in the springtime and really get the roots warm and accelerate that growth rate and get those microbes going faster. Um, so, you know, you can, you, you just because you're not doing aquaponics, you can't adapt this, this method, but tell people a little bit more about that with a tankless water heater and, and, and how that works and, and how that, you know, how well that worked for heating greenhouses because, you know, the efficiency on that was quite incredible. Oh, it's amazing. The, the farm that I just did this one on, it wasn't an instantaneous water heater. It's a 300,000 BTU boiler. But still, they were trying to put their uh, plants in to grow their seed for the outdoor hemp plant. And they had frozen soil in there. The soil was frozen. We had to dig it up, put these tubes in, and get that place up and operating in weeks. They spent $1,000 in propane in five days, getting it up to 70 degrees from freezing. That's but great. this is, a, sorry. I just said that's cranking. You said in five days, thousand gallons. Yeah, yeah, seven thousand square foot grow. But that was all just propane. And when Steve's talking about an instantaneous water heater, I do it like a little three hundred gallon tank, with just a few feet of stainless steel in there, closed loop, little tiny. It's like six point six gallon per minute type heater. Tiny, tiny. Ain't even enough to shower with. I don't even know what they make them for, but they're cheap. They cost like 150 bucks off the shelf online. Natural gas or propane. But the point of the one at the hemp farm I just did with all that propane, if they could get, it's just like geothermal. If you think of geothermal where they bury all the tubing in the holes. But that's not practical either. It doesn't work so well. I can do better other ways than huge deep holes and hundreds and hundreds of feet of PEX pipe buried. That stuff just has a horrible temperature coefficient of changing, transferring the energy. That's why they need hundreds and, of feet of the plastic. And you're and you're talking about the black pecs, not the the metal line. So so talk about yeah, the difference. Know. So talk about the difference with the lines for people that are make you know working on heat exchangers or maybe trying to um, you know figure this out on their own. Uh, talk about that with the with the metal versus the plastic. Well, um, if you go all the way to like the black sprinkler piping, low pressure, thin wall coils of black sprinkler piping. I want to give an example of that. The farm I'm also doing this work with right now. Um, they've got another organic farm where they heat some of their greenhouse. And I think Ciro is involved in this place a little bit. Uh, they heat it with just compost heat piles, but he has to have hundreds and hundreds of feet of this black poly pipe in the pile. And it's fragile pipe, can't be run at any good pressures or anything. They've even they keep using this pipe for everything. We've got pecs in the slab inside the building, which is working. It, you know, they're getting the heat out of that. They're getting 180 degree water out of this compost pile, but it takes so much. And they're just doing a big wire fence with fence stakes and just open air pile. And this company wants me to design a system for them right now using roll off trash containers where I put this corrugated stainless steel manifold of tubing inside the container fill it with compost, top it off and ship it out, umbilically connect it to your heating or cooling systems, use up the heat from the compost, 
bring that container back, set another hot one there, take the used container of compost, pull the heat exchanger and all that compost out the end of that shipping container onto a cleaning pad, knock off all the solids, save the solids bag that, sell that, rinse off all your equipment, save that tea, and then put the heat exchanger back into the shipping container, uh, refill the shipping container with fresh compost and top it and ship it out again, like a big transfer station for compost instead of trash. That's my plan also there. Uh, using again, just the same thing, corrugated stainless steel circulating some water. Yeah, I, I know one of the better ways to do it, you get the gas line, right? Take the plastic off, that's, that's one of the easier ways. Well, that's what I was going to tell you about. Everybody keeps doing these designs with PEX and plastic and different polys. The coefficient of transferring the energy from the water on the inside of the tube to the outside of the tube is just horrible. It's actually an insulator. It doesn't work well at all. It takes hundreds of feet to do it. The corrugated stainless steel that I use, I just take the plastic coating off of gas pipe. It's just gas piping. Um, other countries do use it for things in piping. Um, it's not really approved for any kind of building piping or potable piping or any practical uses other than gas in America. But it, all of its ratings, pressure ratings, temperature ratings, everything exceeds anything you're ever going to do. And it works so good at exchanging um, temperatures. It doesn't take very much. So that's what I keep working on is that that corrugated stainless steel is the key. Um, heat exchangers are thousands to tens of thousands of dollars if you start getting into volume. If you want to price a heat exchanger out of stainless steel to do two inch connections, that's going to be a few thousand dollars. And this corrugated stainless steel, when I just put in the ground, I had 60 feet of stainless cost me a buck and a half a foot. No, not a buck and a half a foot. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to quote prices on that right now. I can't recall. It was cheap. I think it was a buck and a half a foot. I can't believe it sounds that cheap, but that sounds too cheap. But the fittings are 150 each. So. Look <laughs> <laughs> on the, the fittings. Don't worry. They'll yeah, make they, it up somewhere. I know somewhere it gets expensive. <laughs> that still sounds so, cheaper. So my buddy Bain recently up uh, at Vertica put in a huge giant coil system similar to what you're talking about for cooling their water um, because they were having warm, warm water issues though. What, to, what other suggestions aside from, from doing large geothermal coils uh, similar to, uh, to what like what you were just talking about um, for, for cooling water, what, what other methods would you suggest for people, especially, you know, there's a lot of people built with aquaponic systems in the south that are struggling to keep their water cool. What are some of the other methods that you would suggest for people? Cooling is always the hardest thing. Um, you know, your wet walls and everything uses up so much water. Uh, no, but I mean the cooling the water and this is specifically I know yeah. we would run the uninsulated piping, uh, you know, specifically for the purpose of, of bleeding that off, and then again running your sumps and your fish tanks and your grow beds, running in your 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 exchange loops, uh, allowing that to run out to your you know underground into into a cool loop, um, with a, yeah, you know, get... a lot of loops, loop 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 loop, and I'll I'll have a. Uh, one of these days soon, I'll have Bain come on and do, he, he took a bunch of pictures during the build. I'll have him come on and do okay. a whole little presentation on it. But um, So uh, uh, we worked on a whole bunch of different cool stuff over at Aquaponics Source. So why don't you talk about some of the different designs and things that we you had a chance to work on. And uh, I know you, you did a bunch of work with fruit trees uh, and you actually did quite a bit of work with that. Why don't you talk about um, some of the work with, that you did with fruit trees and some of the methods you found that worked uh, in your greenhouse. We did a bunch of cool stuff there. 
it was basically just big dual root zone systems and 55 gallon drums with lime trees. And then we've had other people that have adapted that to apple trees and stuff. They bury the drums in the ground even and flood and drain. I literally just was doing a 55 gallon drum. I would put my media guard and standpipe for a flood and drain inside of that and plant on top of that, the, the media on top of the media, just like any dual root zone. And basically one just big one dual root zone pot <laughs> in a 55 gallon drum, literally. And it was working great until I hit winter time and couldn't afford the propane. My uh, solar system went out on me, the solar heating. And I was counting on that a lot. So I never followed my fruit trees through the winter, but it sure did work good. It was just so, uh, a dual root zone. So, so you did a, a bunch of work with solar water heating. Talk about that. That was another way that, aside from the uh, the tankless water heaters, we were able to get you know, really, really immense heat, uh, heat gain. Yeah, again, just solar plate collectors, flat copper plate collectors was was another great source of that you could do those indirectly you know because they're copper and everything again you got to isolate those elements from your aquaponic water so you definitely still got to that corrugated stainless steel always comes into play or like you said uh tubing underneath beds or isolated in some way otherwise you got to have uh you know you can still do uh, all stainless steel heating components and types of components that won't cause harm but that separation comes into key and that stainless steel heat exchanger is always, whether you're heating, cooling, you were mentioning cooling again, I still think that heat exchanger in whatever medium you want to cool it with, like say you can cool some water from a wet wall, that water's cooler. If you can run that heat exchanger through the return water from at the base of a wet wall, maybe, you gotta start getting creative with them. But again, that's gonna be closed systems and circulating that water and heat exchange methods being efficient again it's that corrugated stainless steel is the key very cool we have another question from chat how expensive are the propane bills associated with the tankless h2o heaters it's again that's going to depend on your environment my pond and sump total about 1500 gallons and I go through the winter worst case scenario, I'd burn $100 worth of propane a month in this system. That's a 24, about a 24 by 24 hoop house, 13 feet high. I do have an in-ground heat exchange system, a GAT that's six foot deep, the full footprint of the hoop house, all gravel, one foot lifts. I would need to count them again. I don't know how many hundreds of feet of four inch corrugated I have in there. Each loop of corrugated is 32 feet long. Again, it's just 55 gallon barrels, like a vertical plenum buried into this six foot deep at each end of the greenhouse. And I blow down one and out the other. So that supplements it. So with that running, I always have 54 degree air coming out of the ground. It does start to drop a little bit when I get 10 degrees and colder outside if I get below zero it, I down into the teens I can keep the hoop house in the 50s with single layer poly or the 40s it can get into the low 40s if I start getting below the teens and I'm not burning propane I get frost in there 
Um, so I'm burning the propane. If I keep it above that, I want to still try and stay in the 40s through the winter. Uh, that's where I'm burning about 100 gallons a month. If I get hotter, I'd have so much humidity and steam problems in there. It's I don't know how to contain that without putting a cover on the pond. Other things to play with. I got to start throwing money at my winter operation to do things like that. <laughs> but yeah, you'd walk in there and you couldn't see through the steam in the room. Too much differential in a hoop house. So, you know, the, but that those <laughs> are some extremes. That, uh, opening the door and then just the cloud forming in front of you was always pretty cool when it was humid in there and, and ultra cold and dry outside. But like, those are some extremes. Absolutely. But to stay in the 40s, just blowing air through the ground has always been so impressive with just a single layer poly hoop house. Yeah, so talk more about geothermal. Uh, uh, I often get how deep do I need to go, and I always tell people go as deep as you can without hitting water table. <laughs> water deep, table isn't necessarily a bad thing, though, if you're doing heat exchange with plumbing piping like the corrugated or something. But if you are committed to air, you, obviously, once you get into that, you can't circulate your air. So yeah, that's a good rule of thumb, as deep as you can. Once you get over, it depends on how cold your winters are and such, but usually the earth average is low 50s, you know, year round. Anyway, you can harvest that. Um, what I, the GAT math always says, if you blow an air through the ground, you basically need to design your system to have enough area of tubing in the ground below that frost level that's in the 54 degree zone. You have to have enough tubing to circulate the cubic foot of volume of air in your structure three times an hour at a minimum. If that kind of makes sense. Your, your fan needs to be able to move enough air and you know the cross-sectional area of all of your tubing added up it has to be enough to circulate that at least three times an hour. And if your ground system is deep enough and big enough, which there's no reason, you know, you got a 20 by 20 hoop house, your ground system could be 40 by 40. Like, who knows how big a system you need to be? You go four, five, six foot deep with that, go as big as you need to. And you can always keep adding on to one, I would think. Yeah. Get outside of your structure. We had someone that says, um, if you were, you were heating water, it's hotter than, Oh, I'm sorry. If you were heating water that was hot, that would get expensive. It's like, yes, that is, it's not necessarily cheap, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper than heating the air in there. And if you heat the water, the water will heat the air. And you yes. can use the water as a thermal battery. And that's really where, that's really, especially if you get into really cold climates, the advantage of putting large tanks underground or in, in you know, in, like similar to the design uh, with your greenhouse, where the whole center of the greenhouse has a giant pond that's underneath on a platform underneath the grow beds that allows that heat to radiate up. And if you heat that up with solar water heaters in combination with a tankless water heater as a backup, you know, you're, you're talking, you know, not a whole lot of money. The, those solar water heaters can put out 180, 190 degree water, no problem, as soon as that sun comes up, you know, within about They'll an hour. They'll make steam. They'll make yep. steam. Oh, yeah. Well, you just don't want them to get hotter than that. Hotter than that, you start unsoldering pipes with them. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> It'll undo the sweat joints at the outlet. It's crazy to watch. So, so yes. going, back, going back to the geothermal though. Uh, uh, so uh, I actually uh, have some nice pictures that you were kind enough to post a long time ago uh, of your build where you have the, the um, 
55 gallon drum, plastic 55 gallon drums that you used with, I believe it was three inch corrugated plastic. It'd be four. Four inch. That was four inch. Yeah. So you got pics of what I was talking about then. Yep. Yeah. I have pictures in that build. Yep. I'm using it right now. It's cooling my greenhouse better than you could imagine. The swamp cooler, the last few days, our humidity came up a little bit here. So the swamp cooler was struggling, but the ground system still made a 10 degree difference. Let's see if on I can top of the there. swamp cooler. Because I didn't. I can dig those up here while we're talking. I didn't leave the GAT fan on last night. I only had the swamp cooler on. And when I went out this morning, it was, I was getting into the high 90s. And I turned on the GAT system again and it dropped it another 10 degrees beyond what the swamp cooler was doing. And that's, that's quite tremendous considering how much does that GAT system cost you to run per hour? <laughs> That little fan, I'd have to look at the, I haven't ever measured the amp usage on it, but it's just a stupid little uh, circulating fan, 16 inch fan. It's it's not even a big fan. Here, let me. Uh, so yeah, the cooling better. side of that has been really effective. I've been way more impressed with the cooling. I usually don't, I usually don't there use the go. cooling. Because I grow my CBD THC strains and they're just bulletproof. I don't even have to do anything out there if I go out there and I like it. <laughs> but yeah, this year's the first year I've really been using it for cooling. Everyone should be able to see the screen now. There we go. There's pictures of your greenhouse. This is the solar water heater. Can everyone yeah, the see two that? panels. Yeah, so this is the solar water heaters you're talking about. This is plumbed underground, which runs to the back of the greenhouse. And then here you can see the corrugated metal uh, lines that he's talking about yeah. in the water. And they run underneath. Now, this is the platform that's above the pond here. And that allows, uh, basically keeps the, uh, um, uh, allows us to have, you know, have a, a pond underneath with the grow beds on top. And then we have- Not losing here, any space. So there's a, a representation of it from Sketchup. Uh, so here's the here's your actual build out with the with those. I have more pictures. Do I add them in this? I don't have them in this deck, but um, this is a good one. Here's right the here. actual build out of his of his greenhouse, and this box is a deep well in the pond where the pumps go and everything. In case you're wondering what that is. Yeah, my my liner recesses down into that. The Durascrim does, and then you can see there, top left, that's where we were putting in PEX hot water radiant tubing in the ground below everything, the very first layer. So I can even add add temperature to my gap with the solar yeah, or any other heat if I want. That didn't to. work out as well, right? I no for need for it. It's no. it's not that practical. It's just it it wasn't needed. I just it's. It never really served a purpose, I don't think, unless it, it would have been a one, one or, you know, you do either or you could do that. I would recommend you could do something with the tubing over here if you were doing an all water system or you could do the air system. You see on the right, that is an example of one layer of it. You put all that tubing in, drilled into the barrels at each end. You got an inlet and an outlet plenum. Fill that up with a foot of gravel, lay the tubing again. Drill, I just drilled a barrel each time, stick them in into the barrel and just kept coming up with uh, lifts of gravel and tubing all the way up. And that's six foot deep. And here's a here's a representation of what it actually looks like in, in practicality if we took all the yeah. dirt away and, and everything. 
I did find I got to point out something that a lot of times people talk about taking the air from the top of the greenhouse or not like this is drawn. And this is my system here, actually, because I do to have two outlets and one inlet, as a matter yep. of fact. Um, just the other day, I put a riser on mine and it wouldn't cool. I thought taking the heat out of the top and putting it through the ground was going to help. It actually heated up the greenhouse. So I took the stack off and I'm taking it off at about two to three feet off the floor level. And it was cooling better. So I, I think I'm just circulating right at the ground level better and the heat staying at the top and going out the openings better. I found that to be really interesting. Well, that's good to know as well. That, that's real good info. I think in the winter is when I might want to take it from the top. And for, for those of you that don't know, here's a wet wall. Talk about that. Or a swamp cooler. Basically the same it's thing. Just, if you want to go back to that a second. When, when, you, when you talked about cooling, and if you're trying to cool your pond water or fish tank or, or some deep water culture beds or something, here is where I would exactly say you could do that. If you look at this design, that water going down that wet wall, it probably drops 30 degrees in that. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but I'll bet you get a 30 degree drop between the water going in the top of that and coming out the bottom. So if you put a corrugated stainless steel coil inside of that tank there and then another one in the deep water culture or whatever you're trying to drop temperature in, that would do that. And then now the size of it starts to come into play. Is it just a matter of volume? Does it need to be insulated? Would you insulate that tank? Would you bury the tank? Would you, you know, there's a cooling design right there to take that cooling out of there with a corrugated stainless loop. That water is going to be cold. A lot of people draw their air through their room with a wet wall also to help neutralize pollen. And it's a lot of times if your, your air okay. is drawn through, then you can, uh, especially nowadays where you have a lot of uh, infields um, yeah. air where people don't necessarily care um, whether or not they have nails, which is understandable. Um, but there, you know, there's going to be pollen that results from that. And so people that are, especially in high use areas that want to continue growing uh, you know, cannabis without seeds. Um, water is a great way to neutralize pollen, um, especially in, in uh, high to moderate areas, I guess. So it might not even be just a cooling element they're using it for. I see. Oh yeah, and 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 uh, one thing I see people do a lot wrong a lot of times is they'll get the wrong thickness for their wet wall. They'll get maybe a one or two inch thick when they really need a four or six. I see it quite commonly in Oklahoma where people, this is, I, I can't tell you how many times I see this, people people from California or Oregon are coming in and they're using the climate control for those. And you're growing in Oklahoma where it gets way hotter, you know, 20, 30 degrees hotter. And, and humidity is an issue. You, and, yeah, and, and higher humidity as well. And they're just, they don't account for that. And then they build these systems. And I see it all the time where I go to a greenhouse and the greenhouse has like a six foot sidewall. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is not the greenhouse for this climate. You know, I've, I've worked in the, the Caribbean. I've worked in the tropics. I've worked in Africa. I know how to design a greenhouse that will, you know, hold temperature, right? So, but, you know, mm -hmm. I've used a couple of different designs successfully. I've used some of them not successfully. Uh, I can tell you what works, what doesn't. The, the best design is to go with a split level where one side is higher than the other. And then you have a trap door that can open up. Uh, you know, you have your, your two halves. And then the trap door can open up 
uh, and allow that hot air to, to escape from the greenhouse from that, that higher level to the other and, and allow that heat to roll up and out. Uh, so it really let convection really, move it. Exactly. And let the heat convection move the heat up right out of the greenhouse. So uh, if, if you're talking super hot, but in, in, in Oklahoma, you really just need a 16 or 18 foot peak on that so that you can pump that air through or ideally even higher. So you can have a heat attic above your shade cloth and, and really, you know, keep, keep that lower layer cooler. Um, but people often don't go thick enough on the wet wall. It's expensive. Yep. You start but, pricing that pad by the inch, they start going, what? <laughs> yeah, but when you start talking about their monthly price on cooling versus an AC unit. Oh, you can't afford AC. That, that was the thing when I did that. I did a 7,000 square foot house, six inch slab, and we had a two ton refrigeration unit cooling the slab. It ran 24 hours a day. Couldn't get the house below 78 degrees. We hooked it up to his deep water groundwater well and froze her out. And we weren't using any refrigeration at all, just a 110 volt pump circulating water through the house now. And it did twice the performance. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people, I still think there's a lot of room for, for future hybridization with a lot of these methods uh, with, with overall greenhouse design, particularly with aquaponics and hydroponic designs, and, you know, using the thermal mass of the systems themselves for, for, for heating or cooling, especially places like Canada or, or even in hot climates as well, uh, you know, both at both extremes, both heat and cold. Yeah, you had the guy asking about the propane expenses. Again, when you were referring to water and air, the efficiency of heating solids or what you're, you're heating more solids with your water type of exchanges, um, heating something like air, it just comes and goes with the wind and it like I was talking about the coefficient of heating from the water on the inside of a plastic tubing, transferring that energy to the outside of the tubing being like an insulator. Air is an insulator. So it takes so long for 80 degree air in the warm in a room to warm all the objects in that room to 80 degrees, which if you keep pumping cold 80 degree air in there, you might never even be able to do it. Where radiant systems is what I was trained in classically as a plumber where we just put the hot water tubing in your floor that heats up the floor, heats up every single item on the floor, including their chocolate bars. If you get the pantry, we learned not to do certain parts of the house. <laughs> but yeah, that, that heat, that mass, it takes very little energy, very little energy to heat up some mass and the mass holds for a long time and transfers to solid objects. Cold transfers, heat goes too cold. It's, it's an, cold does not go to heat. It's something hard to understand. If you ever stand next to a cold window or something in the winter, you feel that cold feeling of the window. You know there ain't nothing cold blowing at you, but you feel that cold coming at you, taking the heat from your body. Cooling's we, always uh, better than heating. We had another question in, from chat. It uh, goes, how do you prevent the heat from spiking up during the hot spot of the day? The heat of, of water systems? Yeah, so yeah. So I, I know normally they are on a thermal switch, right? So it's not it's not gonna constantly keep heating the water because the sun's out. No. Turn, no, my, turn off and on based on the temperature. Yeah, I have a 12 volt solar pump on my little system and it's just got a little waterproof sensor probe sitting in, in the water. And mine's actually in my aeration loop. I just stuck it in one of the holes of it. And uh it just senses the water and if it drops 
to whatever your setting is, I got a digital thermostat and it just turns on the pump. If the pump comes on, then the water heater fires. There's no mass stored anywhere like a normal water heater in your house versus on demand. You only heat on demand at the moment you need the heat. So there's no energy ever wasted on a, on a system like that unless it comes on. And when and the flow switch, there's a flow switch that senses that the pump came on, water circulates, and that's what makes the gas fire. And all this can be done off grid because those are usually fired by D cell batteries even. So you run a 12 volt pump, a D cell battery ignition system on your heater, you don't even need 110 volt to do any of these. So what about um what about plumbing? A lot of people often ask about solar pump, solar plumbing, and uh, you know, can you go off grid? Uh, you've done a little bit of work playing around with different types of pumps and, and options for that. Uh, what, what have you found works best? Again, the inefficiency of going high voltage to low voltage to do stuff always kind of makes you want to stay on the 12 volt, 24 volt side of systems to do real good off grid. And it just, it's still, I haven't dove into that recently in a while, taking it too seriously. Um, there are solutions I had is, you know, separate you know, pump driven by belt driven motor or something. You can't just, there's nothing off the shelf to do this anywhere that I'm aware of. But you definitely want to stay on your DC side of things um, and design pump along that system. Um, th th that's your limitations, honestly, for off grid without having huge battery banks and inverters and huge losses and lots of panels and stuff everything gets smaller if you can control all that yeah and and what one one other thing too you can do is pretty cool with the solar water heaters uh, at nighttime if it's colder if the air temperature is colder than your water temperature you can turn your solar water heaters on and they'll work like solar radiators and they'll yep, actually they will cool that water heat off and they'll cool your water so if, if you're running a large solar water heater bank in a place like say oklahoma so that you can heat your water in the winter time you can at nighttime, so say for example, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the farm I've been working with, their, their water recently has been getting up into the 80s, which is very much a problem. Uh, if it's in the 70s or 60s at night, we could fire up those solar water heater panels and, and dump that heat off pretty quickly overnight and allow that water to absorb some of the heat during the day and allow us to, again, further keep those temperatures down by sucking that heat out of the room, just like you're talking about. So. Again, you can yep. use those uh, to, uh, uh, to cool your place as well. Uh, again, it's not till nighttime, but again, those solar water heaters can be used as a, as a cooling method in reverse uh, at nighttime. It does work. Hey, Steve, do you mind if I share the, the first step of this mullen wrap sure. that uh, they were asking about in the chat? Then you sure. guys can keep talking while I roll it. There's somebody <laughs> asking in chat about the mullen wrap I did a couple of weeks ago. So I went and grabbed a leaf. This is a nice big mullen leaf. And uh, so what I do, usually this main stem right here is kind of a problem. So I try to get a leaf that's big enough that I can use just one side of the, the leaf. So I cut that off. <laughs> and so we're basically shooting for, you know, about the whatever size paper you want. So now I got half of it. And this one happens to have a couple holes in it. <clears throat> So I'm going to cut those out. And I'm going to kind of, I think I'll cut this one into about 
maybe two medium sized ones. So now I have myself just like a small wrap, another wrap here, and I'll twist one up while we're talking and then I'll show you what it looks like. Cool. I did this uh, a few weeks ago and um, now somebody was asking about it in chat. Not to be to go over again. So what's a mullen leaf? Mullen is a it's a plant like woolly mullen. Um, I don't know what family of, you know it's called uh, commonly called Indian toilet paper, I guess. <laughs> and uh, but it's a uh, considered medicinal for a number of different things. It's really good for like uh, lung infections, coughs, um, things like that. So smoking, it's uh, <clears throat> really nice. I like to add it to joints or, or use it for uh, wraps like I'm doing here. And uh, really helps my, my stoner cough, helps uh, keep my congestion down. It's a great, great, cure, great cure for what I like to call COVID-420. COVID-19, you know, you got yeah, right. taking a big hit, We especially uh, traveling lately. I uh, love to refer to it as COVID-420, but here's a quick like thing. It. If you're looking for the Latin name or you want to learn more about it, it's a great plant. Um, now, I would recommend that you um, let it dry for about a day, day and a half, depending on what your, what your temperature and humidity is. And it'll be kind of more like the consistency of cloth when you try to roll with it. And uh, it's very, very easy to roll if um, <clears throat> when it's green, it's a little harder to light. <clears throat> but you don't need glue or anything. It's kind of uh, naturally sticky on its own. I'm familiar with the plant now. I see it here. Yeah, it has it has trichomes on it that are sticky. Is that why it's fuzzy? Um, the buds of it actually are similar to cannabis buds. You can actually take the bud. So in this picture here, you can see there's kind of a bud stalk uh, or bud flower. Yeah. Uh, so so they, they only flower the second year. You cut this, let me find a good, okay. So you can see here on the right side of this picture here, let's view image. Yes, that does still exist for some people. All right, um, this is the leaves. You're gonna smoke the leaves. The buds you take and you steep in a mason jar and you can make a really good salve out of it with sunflower oil or coconut oil. Steep them for three to six months and you will have an incredibly good salve that will cure a whole wide range of skin issues. But you smoke the leaves or use them as a wound dressing uh, and they, they will clean your lungs up. You can use them to, to treat a wide range of issues and, and really help you breathe a lot better. Uh, I know anytime someone takes too big of a dab, they're coughing their brains out. Uh, it's the first thing I do. I actually have a bong set aside just for that, for, for packing that up and, and smoking it to, to help people with huh. their lungs. Definitely, uh, yeah. definitely a good plant to know about. It really, really does a great job with uh, congestion and opening up airways. <clears throat> I know some asthmatics uh, carry it uh, just in case their inhaler breaks or anything, oh. especially um, like trail hikers and stuff like that. I've heard of. Um, yeah, it's a bronchodilator. You can use it in emergency if you're out hiking with people and someone has an asthma attack or 
or a, a sudden breathing problem, use it to open that airway chemically. Works really well. So you can kind of see now, we got it rolled up here like a joint. And because it's green right now, it's got a little bit of uh, tension to it. So what I do is just kind of set something on top of it, like a book or something like that, just to leave it under pressure for a minute or two. And then in just a few minutes, we'll spark that up. When they're, when they're really green, they, they have a little more tension to them. Uh, you know, about the same time tomorrow, this will be nice and pliable, almost like a piece of cloth, like a thick piece <laughs> of wool. And uh, it's really easy to roll with and get to stick, uh, super easy. But this is, I just cut this, uh, that's when I went on the podcast just a few minutes ago. This is a green right off the plant. Um, you can smoke it that way if you need to. Um, like I said, it just uh, is a little harder to light, kind of burns slower like a cigar. And, uh, and it's got a little more rigidity in the, the plant veins. Um, so if you want it to be uh, really nice, then just give it about 24 hours or so, you know, until it's that really nice cloth-like consistency. And uh, then it's it's easier to roll with than, than papers, harder to puncture a hole in. Uh, <laughs> I, I swear by it. Uh, I know uh, I've used it at multiple conventions and uh, uh, I know that Josh Rutherford will attest to this quite, quite well. Uh, to curing people at different conventions and, and cups and things, or using it to prevent myself from from getting sick, uh, smoking with two, three, four hundred people. You know, you always get that convention cough or convention cold. And uh, if you smoke Mullen, you don't get that. You know, you have this <laughs> nice antibiotic vapor that you're getting, and it stops you from getting cold. But if you get COVID or something like that, it will help, you know, prevent secondary infections uh, in your lungs. It won't do anything for the COVID. Nothing, you know, no one knows anything that works for that. You know, 100% going to say that right mm -hmm. now. But it will help with secondary things like pneumonia. It will absolutely help. The Native Americans used it for treating pneumonia back when the white people first came here. So it, it's got a documented history going back well into the 1800s of medical use in the United States, both uh, on both the you know herbalist side and the you know documented medical side, and has derivatives that are in the pharmaceutical world uh, to this day. So. It doesn't really, um, I mean, it, you can definitely tell it, it has a, it has a flavor, but it's pretty mild. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's there, it definitely tastes different, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not any more overpowering than like a hemp paper. I would say the only thing that maybe has like less flavor would be like a rice paper. That might be the only thing that I would say if you, if you, you know, some people are really like, oh, all I want to taste is the weed. Okay, well, you know, maybe a rice paper would be better because you can definitely taste this a little bit, but not very much. I would say very, very akin to like a hemp wrap or uh, that stuff. So there you go. For you guys who were asking, I think it was anthro, right? So yeah, that's it. That's all you need. Whole thing. So I get, uh, I got another half a leaf left here. I'll probably cut another two out of that one. So I'll get uh, you know, four small, or you could do one, one big one. If you really wanted to, you got a bunch of people coming over, uh, me and, uh, some of my friends, uh, smoked the big long one, maybe a little, a little longer than this one. I smoked the big one on the podcast a few weeks ago. Some of you guys probably saw that. So, um, works great.
Awesome. Agipi, now oh. chairman of the FCC. I love it when you hit a thing on your phone. Kind of um, so, Robbie, why don't you tell us a little about plumbing? You, you know, you did all different types of plumbing. We worked on all different types of grow beds, different sizes, different layouts. Uh, what are some of the different, uh, I guess, things that people need to know about plumbing their aquaponics system? I know one thing you always talked about was not using primer in aquaponics system. Do you want to touch on that? That's where most of the vo volatile chemicals are, are in the primers. There's no reason for it. You're not doing anything high enough pressures in aquaponics to worry about the the integrity of the joints to that point Def definitely no primers uh, a good call because that's one of the most biggest things going to enter some volatile compounds into your system it just doesn't go away well hard to get back out so i definitely wouldn't like using primers it's just not necessary <laughs> you'll never get something apart that you didn't use it on i'll tell you that um Gosh, I don't know what to say about all of the plumbing side, but it's more of a problem solver than knowing what to say. <laughs> so, so here's one, uh, and this is a question I think you and I answered so many times we could probably answer it, you know, completely unconscious. Um, my bell siphon doesn't work. What do I do? <laughs> Make a U siphon. Oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what it isn't working. <laughs> Does it have an input? Is there an output? Is it too high or too low? <laughs> That's what um, I'm saying. So, so, so I guess maybe walk through a, a quick like uh, troubleshooting guide on that because it's a, a really common question I see constantly posted on different aquaponic groups. Uh, the outlet of your bell siphon having an offset in that. I can't say how critical that is. It just disturbs the water flow enough. Water always travels around the outside of a pipe unless it's flowing horizontally. Um, it's forever vertically going down a pipe, water will spiral down the exterior surface of the pipe. It never just falls. So that's kind of an interesting thing about the physics of water going down a pipe. People think it just falls and it, it doesn't unless it's disturbed somehow. So it just spirals down the outside. And if the water flows down a pipe spiraling into your to the outlet the air can come right up the center of that water flow and that's one reason why it wouldn't break is it's that air is never going to it's never going to form that plug to where it uh, actually stops the air coming back through the pipe so that the water will create the siphon and start that siphon we call firing the siphon that turbulence created by offsetting from a vertical pipe to horizontal is what definitely facilitates that. Like I say, without any offset in that pipe, the vertical pipe will always let air back up through the center of it. So the offset in that outlet's real key. Um, and then the inflow rate is, is always so critical. If you have too fast of an inflow rate, it just, when it tries to break and it's at the bottom and sucking air through the bell at the bottom that constantly gets the inflow rate is high enough that it replaces that air gap that air gap has to be created long enough to suck enough air to break that siphon so that just comes down to water flow rate and it's surprising how slow a water flow rate needs to be for those it doesn't have to speed up very much to where it just will not break and just keeps sucking out and uh, 
And if it's not fast enough, your, your beds will stay flooded. And if it's too fast, the beds will be, you know, totally flooded at the bottom, right? Yep. Yep. I think the worst case scenario is totally flooded and not firing. A lot of things can go bad in that flood stage if you're not designed to be just. Yeah, things can go anaerobic pretty quickly and get nasty. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we, so uh, one way to round that is to flare or flange the end of your intake. And you can either do that by heating and flaring the pipe or by putting in a, a bushing like, like, like we used to do uh, with, with the kits, correct? Yeah, a bushing or a bell yep. can help with that if you have trouble. A lot of times you don't need it, but there are a lot of times where that something like that will help. And that can widen the range that the, that self, the, uh, the flow rate that, that can fire at by doing that. It, it's capable. So, so we did a bunch of testing with trying to figure out what the maximum flood and drain size was. And we came up to about, was about 48, 50 square feet. The 12 by four, I think was about the biggest that we found that was reliably fireable on a one inch. Remember we did the one inch and the two inch pipe or inch and a half? Yes, yes I do. And I, I do recall some of those numbers. That's coming back to me a little bit that uh, the, the time that it takes to drain and fill becomes it's like so an 18 great. minute or 19 minute cycle time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because your flow rate going in is slower than is as fewer gallons per minute than you would think. So then those times really start to go up the bigger a system gets those, those times between flood and drain cycles can really get large. And it takes a lot longer to dial in one of those. Cause you know, what is it doing? is a lot longer uh, happening in between and what's happening. It just, the variable gets pretty great. Uh, Marty, are you still there? Do you want to talk touch on, on loop siphons or do you have any questions for Robbie on, on loop siphons? We found that loop siphons, you can go significantly larger. You can go up to about 100, 125 uh, square feet before it, you start to run into issues that maybe Marty even does something bigger, but that was the largest I've found reliably at least. Yeah, I just haven't even been messing with larger stuff. So, I've been staying within the one inch. Yeah, so in the system I have right now, um, running U siphons in, um, I have inch and a half drains. They are 13 foot long beds by about, I want to say 20 inches wide. Not, not real deep. And, um, my cycle time is crazy. It's like seven minutes or something like that um, for the full cycle flood and drain to break. And so um, what I did is I have my U-siphon. I don't have a restrictor either. So, well, I, I don't have a reducer, I should say. So instead of using a reducer to go down from like an inch and a half to one inch, I have, uh, <clears throat> I have, uh, my U goes up and over the top. And then on the downward side of my U, I have a, a ball valve so that I can adjust the um, restriction on the end of the line uh, just by adjusting the valve. And then I come down to an elbow um, and back down into the tank. So by just using the ball valve for a restrictor, it allows you to adapt to different uh, water flows coming into the bed. And then you don't have to reduce it all the way down from like a, an inch and a half, all the way down to like an inch and a quarter, or you know you can kind of have more adjustment 
than just whatever pieces you have put together. And um, so I, I would be really curious to see how it performed on larger beds, because on even on these 13 foot long beds that I have right now, it's, it's no problem. <clears throat> they can fill and drain quickly at, at a pretty wide range of water inputs. Like if I wanted, uh, you know, to go on a low flow where it takes longer to fill and, and not very much time to drain, because obviously the less input you have, then the less time it takes to drain. So it just kind of depends on how you set it up. More water flow is going to take longer for it to break. Uh, so the way they're tuned up right now, um, they, they fill pretty quick and drain pretty quick. It takes about seven and a half minutes. You guys want to check out my YouTube channel at 18 minutes. Um, I filmed it. Um, yeah, I want to. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and uh, I've been using U-Siphons for probably five years now or so. And uh, I've done a number of different ones, whether they're just like the loop siphons with flexible tubing. I run a number of those uh, with three quarter inch on smaller systems. Um, and then I also do uh, same thing there, no reducer or anything. Um, but the U-Siphons that I run with PVC, whether that uh, I did one with an inverted key trap from the kitchen sink, you know, the ones yeah. that come down and yeah. over and back up. So I just turned it upside down. So the U was up and I uh, used that to do it. And then I, the most recent ones I just did um, straight uh, 180s <clears throat> and used those as the top and normal one and a half inch PVC with the ball valves on the end. But the ball valve is really, I feel like the key to making it more adjustable. Um, you know, kind of like on a on a bell siphon where you can cut more slats in your dart, have more or less water flow or whatever you want. Um, that's how adjustable they are, but it's kind of an issue. You know, once you cut a hole in something, you kind of have to go get another piece and start again if you cut too many holes in it. So it, uh, adjusting it was difficult. So just by putting the restriction um, on the end of the drain allows it to. Um, to be adjustable without having to cut anything or replumb anything or make anything drastically different. Um, and so I think that through that, you could use larger drains um, with, a, with a wider area that they would be able to drain before you would have to have multiple drains per bed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I like, I like what you're saying there. I've got an idea about how that's working. The larger pipe with that ball valve, the ball valve is causing that disturbance that I'm talking about that creates that yeah. plug in the pipe. Mm -hmm. It's more than controlling your flow rate. That's just causing a disturbance more than likely and what degree of disturbance of that. Right. That's and you interesting. Get, yeah, it works works really well. Um, I, I want to play My that. outdoor system at my old place, I ran it for, I think, two and a half years or something like that. Um, on a on a U siphon with the inverted P trap and a ball valve on the end. Um, I want to play with those. They're pretty flawless. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. And uh, I'm trying to talk Steve into incorporating it to some of our commercial designs, but I haven't I haven't quite touched him over yet. He's busy playing with his dog over there. <laughs> So one thing, Robbie, I'd love for you to touch on as well is, you know, you had always talked about the remote siphons. I know uh, people out there that I want to get to wrap their head around a little bit, uh, a guy named Glenn Martinez out of Hawaii who um, 
has done a lot of work with some of these funkier designs uh, and it has a lot of really weird and kind of funkier videos on plumbing layouts for aquaponics okay. systems. So can you kind of talk people through the idea of a remote siphon and kind of how that would work and, and how that would be laid out? It's always one of the things that really fascinated me that you kind of always understood more than I did. It's kind of hard to picture without some images in a sense, but it's if you think about your remote siphon just plumbed in off to the side of a bed, um, a lot of ways you could probably go about that. It's it just uh, as long as somehow the areas are tied together in some means, it's yeah, diagrammatic. Now, now you're are you talking about exiting through the side or the bottom of a grow bed? The bottom, the, you, to drain out well, you have to be tied at the bottom. But the way water works, well, all water seeks its own level. And you basically plumb a pipe from the bed out the bottom and you would go horizontally, theoretically to another, either right next to it or a little further remote location where you would have uh, a tank or a barrel or something where the water is actually going up and down in it as well. But that's where your siphon would be located rather than within the grow bed. Remove it completely from the bed and then maybe you can take more multiple grow beds into one larger remote siphon location and bring those on and off as needed by valving drains or inputs or whatever to um, isolate separate systems still to one room, you know, one large siphon in one central or separate operation where all your beds are still plumbed together to one thing. Interesting, never played with it. I've heard of people talking about it now and then, and it makes sense to me as well. I've always wanted to do that on a large scale. Right when I left the aquaponics source, there was a guy that was taking it very seriously, wanted me to design one. He had like 40 beds. He took like Sylvia's simple three foot square beds and multiplied it by a thousand or something for his for his grow design. It was funny. I'm like, you don't want to do that. But yeah, it was a that he had took that design. He was wanting to do remote siphons for all these beds. That's that's I mean, and, and, my and, use techniques are remote siphons because they're not they're not in the bed. Like I could plumb that 30 feet away and drain it into another bin. I just my my sump tank is right underneath my bed. So but and I actually run two media beds per siphon. So well there you go. So that I mean that's basically a remote siphon. It's just there it is. But yeah. you, could that you could fit the same thing with a bell siphon. So if you just imagine another container like he's talking about, uh, you know, between the beds or plumbed outside or whatever, that fills to the same water level that your media bed will fill up to and then drains out. Yeah. So the, and you can do that. Also just fill through the drain. And, and you can do that with like a 55 gallon drum with a 30 gallon drum uh, bell and do you know 12 14 20 beds all at once yeah you, you could you get big scale this up, you know like crazy if you, you want could to. get big yeah with the design and then it, um here's another thing i'm working on right now that i'm waiting for a tank to get delivered to me tomorrow i'm trying to figure out how to pump water with just lifting it with a vacuum into a reservoir above and then gravity feeding system from there just Did lift you, the water with a vacuum. I think you've heard me you talk about that about before. That with, the, with the vacuum pump uh, stuff, a lot of people talk about with the air, with the um, 
the airlift, but actually when you actually scale, the airlift is, doesn't work when you scale it. The no. problem with airlift when you scale it is one, the amount of energy that you spend to scale it up to the same gallon per hour, you end up similar in, in power volume, uh, power rates to your pumps, but also th th there's a chemistry problem. So there was actually a farm that I worked at that was running all airlifts and had air running in, in the grow beds. Well, they're running so much air injection into it that they're actually holding their pH around 8.0. As soon as we shut off the blowers and the rafts, the pH dropped to 6.8. Oh, really? <laughs> you can actually over-aerate over water. Yeah, it's possible. So, so it's something that you have to have to worry about. And uh, you know, if you stack and stack and stack it and stack it, you can actually get to the point where it's actually a problem. And people don't realize that it, it, you can actually do that, and I've witnessed it on a grand scale. Mm. Yeah, it's it's amazing how little energy it takes to lift water with a vacuum. Remember, I proved that with the two-inch uh, siphon yeah, so, systems. So, so tell people about that. That was really cool. Um, just a siphon system to prime a siphon. You just have your loop siphon, which is basically like like a bell, like Marty was talking about. You got your pipes going up and back down into each location you're siphoning from one to the other if both ends of that are sealed even if the one you're siphoning to is not like full of liquid or something in the end of the outlet of your siphon if you can plug that you can evacuate the air in the siphon with a vacuum with very little energy it's only a half psi of energy per vertical foot of lift we, you know, you can lift, you can just suck it with your mouth. You, you can create a lot of vacuum with your mouth, but you can lift water a long ways. So the idea is, if I can take a, a high volume storage tank up at a, at a height like a gravity fed tank would be, from an old gravity pressure system, fill that tank with a vacuum, and then valve off your vacuum line that filled it, close that, and then open an outlet. You'd have a cycle you're gonna to have to control with some solenoids so that some man doesn't have to do it like a monkey every little bit but i can control the solenoid valves to fill and drain a tank by lifting the water to a tank with just vacuum i'm going to do some experimenting on that right now there's going to be the, some more off-grid answers yeah no that's that's a really cool design i never thought about that by by pre-charging it with a vacuum tank because you could just take you could take like a diving tank or something like that and draw like a negative 20 PSI on that. And you'd have a hell of a lot of lift power. And oh, yeah, it, it's that amazing. Would be such a small amount of power that would take as well. I mean, you could run that off of a minuscule solar or, or, or wind. Yes, absolutely stupid little energy to lift water with a vacuum. Just got to do it. And I, and I don't know if I've ever heard it, you know, aside from you, I don't think I've ever heard anybody else talk about that concept, which I think is. Such I can't idea. find anything on it. I found people talk more about getting fresh water from mangroves than this. <laughs> yeah, and again, such a cool idea. Such a cool idea. Yeah, I'm, I've got a guy bringing me a big tank tomorrow, a 300-gallon vertical fire storage tank. But I'm going to start testing this. There you go. Burning it down. Cool. Good work, huh? So what are some of the other things that uh, maybe you never got a chance to test out or, or some of the other stuff that we were experimenting with that uh, you think really would be kind of neat if someone, you know, finally got it out there? 
I'm just slowly wrapping my head back around stuff again as I keep running into my own problems in my own system again. I haven't had this up and going full time except for during the summer just to grow my CBD the last couple of years. To be getting in depth again, everything's slowly coming back to me. You're going to have to get back to me. <laughs> so, right. so, so what do you what do you got going on in your farm there now you, i understand you're growing for competition I've, I've been helping you out there i've got two of these clones in here from the grow off the colorado grow off mystery strains that we don't know what they are everybody gets the same clone and just do your own growing systems it's scientific scientifically tested at the end for potency and terpenes is all and that's the only thing it's judged on so well, we know with uh, terpenes, uh, with aquaponics, it's kind of hard to hard to compare against the aquaponics. So, uh, and they've sure done this do the grow off three years now, and I'm not a, I can't find any sign of anybody doing it with aquaponics yet. Awesome. I know uh, I've entered some some uh, aquaponic cannabis in the, the DGC cups, so I'm sure we'll have uh, have some awesome uh, stuff out here in the future. Uh, and there's lots of different growers going. Oh, another new thing I've got going on. Um, you know the green roof law that Denver passed? No. No, with that at all? Yeah, city of Denver let their voters pass on a law that said all commercial buildings had to have green stuff growing on the roof somewhere at some percentage. And that's become a nightmare. It actually stopped all commercial development for over a year this last year. And they've rewritten it now. And now it's called a cool roof instead of green roof. So they're allowing white roofs, which is horrible. Um, but still, some percentage of green has to get grown on your roof vertically or horizontally. Vertical space on the walls they've approved now. And they're uh, obviously the roof. But um, also off-site, you know, they can allow a, a building contractor developer to put his green roof off-site. And that's, I've got a unique piece of property in Rhino that's 500 feet long right at the A-Line train station to the airport. And... I've been working with architects and uh, Susanna Drake with D-Land Studio even. She did the vertical wall at the 2015 World's Fair. It's a huge vertical farm wall done out of zip grow towers. It's funny, that was done for the State Department. The guy, the architect from the State Department acts like it's all top secret stuff and everything. He was hilarious. But that's a pretty neat project. And we're working on that for my property there. But where that's led is I'm not even working on the design now. A guy that runs a robotics team in Kansas City has actually got his high school robotics team working on this now. That's their project for a competition to design green roof and green walls with aquaponics. It was funny, one of the kids asked me if they could use urine from the, from the building in <laughs> the gray water. Oh yeah. It was hilarious. Yeah, so I'm you, like, aquaponics. Uh, so that was, that was something that we did. We worked a whole bunch on vertical towers. Uh, we actually had one of the zip grows flood the showroom at the aquaponics source. And we actually did a bunch of work designing a better one. Uh, do you want to talk about that? We, we were taking blank fence posts and we were drilling it. Uh, was it three and one eighth inch? I believe it was an eighth of an inch was the additional size on it. Cause it was caught. We had to get extra different. Depended on the size. 16? Yeah. Depended on and the size it, of the grow bag. Yeah. So we were doing three inch and four inch. It was like three and an eighth and four and an eighth or three and a sixteenth and yeah. four and a sixteenth. Like and um, we were drilling out the holes in the blank fence posts and then taking um, a knockout caps from plumbing and knocking out the centers and then using those as, 
as grommets to hold the uh, uh, cloth bags on. So using like smart, small, smart pots with a, a locking, basically a locking nut to, uh, to hold them on uh, and then running the water through those towers. And man, did that work great. And we could transplant the plants, you know, you could pull them out and stick them in your media bed. You could, um, you know, replace them individually. You weren't stuck having to pull the whole tower like you were with the Zipros. Uh, you didn't have to deal with any of the flooding your room accidentally, like with the Zipros. If the power went out, the power could be out for over, you know, a day or two, and the the, the soil and the and the pouch would retain enough moisture to, you know, keep that plant from dying for for quite a few days before you really ran into a problem. So if you had a power outage or whatever, you weren't, you know, you weren't stuck losing your crop. So some infinitely better product, and uh, you know, whatever reason the new owners decided not to continue with it, but. Um, it is a, a, a something that we had a chance to work on. So we also worked on some manifold design and some other cool stuff. Is there anything else that uh, that you wanted to talk about that we learned on that? We did some cool stuff with with plumbing designs on the manifold stuff. Oh, for the irrigation of vertical grows. Yeah. That that manifold system. Yeah. Okay. The big problem with a lot of the vertical systems is they try and do a drip, smaller plumbing, real tiny plumbing systems and then they're always fudging with the drip valve trying to control the flow rates into them and stuff and that was always a nightmare any kind of a small plumbing piping into that many individual outlets for you know hundreds or thousands however many you wanted to farm could you imagine that so we came up with a way to make a horizontal piping manifold where it basically a long pipe flood is up above the towers um, it floods and fills and then basically overflows now if you think of plumbing each overflow of an irrigation yeah up over and back down it's kind of, you know it's kind of like uh anybody ever see how they used to do a cornfield where the irrigation ditch was, went across the top of the cornfield in each row of corn they put in a siphon tube into the ditch and the siphon just ran the water down the ditch it was literally an overflow one siphon at a time for every single row of corn. These things were like inch and a half or two inch. They're huge. A lot of water wasted out the end with all of their nitrates and the pollution and everything. <laughs> but it's kind of like that. It's basically you created an irrigation ditch above your tower, which is just a tube that's flooded, and then outlets off the top of that that can go over and back down that you can control the elevation of those outlets for flow rate and um basically flow rate easiest way to control that flow rate is the elevation of that outlet and even them out which is a few different ways to play with your elevations with just turning elbows and and stuff like that but water always seeks its own level you can find that and then go up and down from there dual root zone so, I don't know if you guys can hear me. My fans are kind of loud. I can hear you. All right. So, yeah, this is my setup. You can see we're just, I'm putting in these new uh, nets for the fencing. So, shit's a little torn apart right now. But uh, here's those tomatoes I think we, we talked about. I put in before. They kind of have their own little net over there on the side between the tanks. But uh, here's the siphons we were talking about. So here I just have these two beds are plumbed together, comes up to 180. I have my ball siphon, or ball valve, excuse me. 
comes down to a turn. And that'll allow you go, to go to a pretty low flow rate if you need to? What was that? That'll allow you to go to a low flow rate if you need to, huh? Even with that bigger pipe? Yeah. I like so that. I can I can restrict that down a lot and uh, probably do half of what I'm doing right now. Oh, yeah, that, that is <laughs> exactly a, a remote that? siphon. That's exactly a remote siphon like me and Steve had been talking about. Yeah, so really if you, I could run all of these together, but since this is a garage, it's sloped, you know, the way they always slope the yeah. garage out towards the door. So they're not exactly the same height. So that is one thing if you're gonna run a remote siphon with multiple beds, um, make sure that you are exactly the same height on all of your beds in order to make that work out. But Correct. for my system, I have those, those two beds over there. Those all fill and drain. <clears throat> and then here, I'll show you guys the other modification that we made. This is where we set these boxes. There you go. So I have the, <clears throat> get in here and see these are pipes that are just set down in here so that we can when we put a new pot in we can just dig down to where you can see those set your pot right down to the right level and then you know where it's at and it won't sink in your beds at all and then yeah, those no those give drainage all the way from one end of the bed to the other also so they don't get completely impacted by roots yeah no anaerobic zone or something can be as easy to yeah, create. it really helps drain more evenly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how this one's set up, and it's, it works really well. I can go over here. I'm sure this one's shut off right now. I'll be filling back up. Yeah, great example of a remote siphon. I like it. Oh, getting ready to start again. There you go. Yeah, nice quick turnover. There you go. And then, uh, <clears throat> That'll run all the way till it sucks air. And that'll be it. Doesn't take long. I like it. All right, I'm gonna get out of here. It's really hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes a great use of a remote. Thanks for sharing that design. Cool. Yeah, so it just goes to show you some of the stuff that we were talking about tonight. Awesome. So uh, any any other, uh, what are some of the other things that you learned along the way doing all the different R&D and some of the other funky stuff we came across? Maybe something you thought was, you know, kind of particularly useful or, or, or stuff like that. I know I can appreciate the size of a system being bigger, having less variables and less ups and downs and swings and worries. <laughs> size of system sure does help. I don't like playing with something small, that's for sure. um overthinking things what one of the other things i think that was really cool that we were working on uh uh i know uh back you know some of the sylvia's last days was the um uh the frame systems with the elect electrical conduit systems and the and the tent pole connectors you yeah talk about that? that you know well, those... people out there looking for real cheap options for uh system design it can be a real good one yeah, the, it's just EMT, one inch EMT electrical tubing. Um, they do make those fittings. It's just uh, pop-up tent fittings, essentially, that you, that just, the bolts just, eye bolts to 
connect all of the tubing, easy to cut the tubing. Um, they have, like I said, different sizes. You can get one inch, you can get inch and a quarter if it needs to be stronger. At the aquaponic source, we had been using those just for table stands, just for structural stands and light racks and stuff, just building things like that out of them. And then we realized we could make grow beds and stuff out of that stuff and just line it with Duraskrim. And that, where we were headed with that was going to be a flat pack grow system that could be in a shipping container shipped anywhere in the world. You unpack it, unroll your Duraskrim, put all of your pieces together, line your beds and, and set up an emergency grow system right out of a container. No big, uh, salt, you know, just tanks. That sounds fun. Right? Yeah, no, you, you could set that up with a hydro system and and if you were smart and, and if you set it up right, you could even put the seedlings in and on some kind of timer with a battery set up or something, even have them germinate, you know, on the way uh, yeah. so that, you know, they, they could have them, go, you know, depending on what you're doing and how it's set up or, or just have the seeds in there so that, hey, you know, in, in three, four weeks after a disaster, this thing gets there and you got food, you know, and, and yeah. continue to stay off for that. Yeah, real quick, you could have greens in no time in a situation like that. Yeah. You could literally especially put you, everything in. Especially if you're just doing microgreens just for that quick two, three week turnover just to feed people and you can yeah. do it better. Microgreens you could pull off in three weeks, three but that was kind of some of the thinking about why you would want to flat pack something and design grow beds and stuff out of Duraskrim and pipe and tubing and everything to that that was yeah. even more than just a cheap shipping method of a product <laughs> yeah. oh yeah and for schools and, and everything else so i couldn't hear you guys in there very well did you have any other questions about the, the new siphon no it made complete sense to me. I like it. I'm gonna have to play with some of that. Yeah, try it out. It works really well. I've had a number of, uh, of people from the forums and stuff try it out and have good luck with it also. Um, I made the guy that sells uh, Bell Siphons on eBay mad, so. <laughs> oh, did you? That's <laughs> worked pretty well. He has customers to complain about it. No, I... Uh... I didn't like the idea of the standard bell siphon that I use for a remote siphon. No, you, you've just solved all my questions. That thing's perfect. No, I, I watched some videos when I first got started about people having, you know, lots of trouble with their bell siphons. And I ran, there was, I can't remember who, I guess I should go look now, but they were doing, um, you know, just regular flexible hose <coughs> uh, loop siphons. And uh, that's kind of what got me the idea of, of doing the just a U siphon as opposed to a full loop, so that yeah. you could have the adjuster and do the larger drain and all that. And so that's kind of where all I started. And I did four, I did four fifty half uh, gallon, sorry, half fifty five gallon barrels for beds on one siphon for that one. So inch and a half again. That actually the original one I did was. Um, an inch and a half and then two an inch and a quarter with a reducer on it. But with this latest one, I took the reducer off and just used the, the valve all together for the larger beds and it works great. It makes it way more adjustable. Right, so if you were going to use smaller beds that you didn't want, like for instance, if you're draining out a ton of water on a small bed, you're, you can suck through an air bubble like that even when your your water levels are pretty high still 
So in some situations, if your drain is too fast, your siphon will break when you still have quite a bit of water left in your beds. Um, especially if you are if you are doing it horizontally drained instead of out of the bottom, <clears throat> it'll break once it sucks air through the top of the pipe. Um, so it's a little bit different. Uh, so just be aware of, of whichever one you're trying to use, but just making it adjustable, I feel like was was really the, the nice part about it. So now I can use it with small systems or big ones. And the, the next thing that I want to do is uh, I just ordered a 3D printer and I'm going to um, be able to print ABS uh, style fittings with my 3D printer. I have some ideas to make like an adjustable siphon that you could just fit on the end of your train, essentially like a like a remote siphon that you could, you could just plug onto the end, assuming all your beds are the same height. Yeah. Pull that off. So that's going to be fun to do. That'll be here on Saturday, and I'll start playing around with printing on my own fittings and stuff like that. So maybe some different drains, uh, fun stuff like that. Oh, in the big enough where I can make some, I want to make some custom dual root zone pots. So I'll be posting some pictures of those once That's I get That's a big it. machine then. It's a good size machine. It's a, I think the build space is 400 millimeters by 400 millimeters by 450. So what's that like 17, 18 by 14 or something like that by 14, pretty good size. Mm -hmm. So just big enough to print, you know, maybe a, you know, three gallon, three to five gallon pot, something like that. So it'll be cool. I, I want to like integrate the, um, the dual root zone so we, you don't necessarily have to use burlap in between. I can essentially just print a mesh that will uh, function in a similar fashion. So I got some cool ideas I'm going to mess around with and see if I can't break something and fix it again. Oh, I might want to talk to you about making my worm tickler. If, you know that white thing in my pot, Steve? See that in my grow pots? It's just an in-bed composter. I make smoothies for my red worms with the blender. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, I've got a design that uh, basically just like a worm farm, you got the, the screened mesh insert would be on the inside of another tube. So you could take out your compost and put it in, move it around the bed and stuff. And just yeah. call it the worm, sure. the worm tickler, the, the root tickler. We'll have to link up. And I just don't want to use plumbing parts. It's always so generic to make all your parts out of physical plumbing parts. It's like, what's so unique about what you just made? Especially when the rolls of the plastic, I think for 330 meters of plastic, it's like 20 to 25 bucks for the ABS rolls. And you can print quite a bit with that. So um, yeah, especially if you're just looking to, to like do a few different prototypes and find out Absolutely. what's the best before you go into full production. Exactly. Uh, or like for me, I, I'm just going to use it to print a lot of stuff for myself. Like we're, we need uh, uh, kitchen knobs for all of our kitchen drawers and cabinets that we just got replaced. So I'm going to go through and print a bunch of kitchen knobs and put them on. So just there's so many random things you can make with it. Oh, but, yeah. um, but uh, especially for printing molds or designs or different stuff like that within, you know, even large prints can only take a couple of days. So what, once the once you have the design changes you want to make and printing another model and trying it out, the turnaround time and trying to use a, a 3D printing service 
or something like that, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot faster. Within a few days, you can be using the next version of your, of your prototype. So uh, it's fun. I'm excited. It's going to be here on Saturday. And I've worked with my buddies. He printed some stuff for me. It came out really great. <clears throat> he printed a couple of fittings for me, a couple of drains. And uh, I was just pretty much hooked after that. So I stopped online and ordered the biggest one I could afford, basically. Fun. Start messing with it. It'd be fun. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, so um, uh, Marty and I are, are cooking up. Uh, I've been working on a pretty cool event. Uh, if you're into aquaponics and cannabis, I highly suggest you keep the uh, weekend of October 3rd and 4th open. We will have more announcements here. Hopefully, I think next week we'll be ready to announce uh, what we're going to be doing. But uh, it will be free to the public, and you won't have to spend any money. But it will be cool, and it will be uh, incredibly educational. <laughs> yeah, and there will be some pretty big names there. So uh, stay tuned for more information. Okay. Yeah. Got something cool we're cooking up, for sure. We've got some and, movies confirmed already. But... Oh, yeah. We already have quite a few people. That's going to be fun. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. This was interesting. Yeah, so Hopefully thanks for joining us. Yeah. But did Marty, questions? Marty, did you have anything else uh, going on before we wrap up? Um, well, let's see. We're putting up those new nets, which I was talking about. Um, I mean, I guess it's not a net. It's really just fencing. It's only three feet tall, so it works out pretty wide. And I just really didn't like that disposable stuff. Uh, let's see, we already talked about the mods that we put in the beds. Um, that's all been done. Uh, working on the working on the recorded class uh, with Marty. Uh, Mar we're, uh, both of our schedules have opened up a little bit more than usual, so we'll have, be able to finish that off here uh, hopefully sooner than we originally thought. So. Yeah, it's kind of funny, like originally, you know, Steve was in Africa, so we couldn't really line up very well and do very much on it. And then, like, right when he got back from Africa, I started a new IT job that sucked up a bunch of my time. And so now, uh, you know, both of our times are, are freed up uh, to be able to work on it. So it's going to be good to make some more progress. But I do have a bunch of clips and stuff that I want to pull in from some of the guests that we've had uh, previously and some of the topics. So I think that the the recorded platform is going to be interesting to play with where we can bring in some of that information that normally we just have to like try to remember or we go oh hey you guys should go watch that one episode of the podcast but now there's yeah. like what is this 200 209 we can't just well, say hey go watch that one episode because yeah yeah with the class we can link directly to the the hyperlink to the uh, the thing so that if you want to go back and and reference the data or, or reference the white paper or reference whatever, whatever that we're talking about, we can drop in the link in the class and, so that you can click and, you know, if you want to jump down that rabbit hole, you'll be able to go and click on the link and learn from someone that, you know, might know more and everything. It'll be, it'll be really cool and interactive. And I think you guys will really uh, appreciate the depth of it. And uh, not only that, but I have a wide range of, of uh, footage from a, a bunch of different farms that Marty and myself have got a chance to work on in a bunch of different runs. A bunch of different cool, just cool and interesting things. 
that we've documented over the years. Uh, so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be significantly longer than we initially thought. But I think uh, the depth of content is going to be beyond what anyone is expecting. So, uh, and then um, the book—I've been working on the book a little bit, uh, a little bit more lately. So uh, hoping to get that finished up by the end of the year. And uh, yeah. I think that's about it, unless you got anything else, Marty. I did have one question that came in through uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, Andrew was asking about, we talked about this uh, previously on one of the episodes of the podcast. Um, again, that's so generic and there's no, probably no way you could find out or, or remember. But uh, Andrew, at some point, uh, found us talking about root pruning, that how you can, uh, some people, uh, prune the larger tap roots or have different methods for um, uh, root pruning and they wanted to know if you had tried uh, doing any of it at different intervals. So I had messed with root pruning a little bit but it was pretty much all at the same time pretty much the like you know one and one to two foot tall range is kind of where it gets transplanted into its last uh, location so that's the only state i haven't tried doing it like when they're super young or when they're super old or anything like that so i thought i'd kick that question over to you steve and uh or anybody and if uh um, you have any experience with trying different stages do i have any experience with what i'm sorry eating a dub <laughs> with root pruning at different stages so like when the plant's super young or older or whichever um because i've always done it pretty much at the same time same age of the plant so uh, we talk about this when we teach our class um what i found that works uh, really well is pruning when you transplant and pruning just the, the tap roots shooting the main one to five tap roots and taking just the very tip of it off because that is where you get that, that root in inhibition growth hormone that causes that tap root to grow and you'll notice an increase in, excuse me an increase in those <coughs> furry webby roots that absorb more of those nutrients Interesting. that's the only time now if i was doing essential herb producing plants, rosemary, thyme, oregano, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I would intentionally grow them in NFTs and then I would pull them out and root prune them every one to two weeks in order to increase the essential oil production, make them think they're under attack by insects. And you can increase them by doing that. Um, but uh, again, that's, that's a very specialized thing. I wouldn't do that with cannabis on a regular basis. Um, sometimes some, some strains of cannabis can be more, much more finicky than others, but I would say, um, you know, avoid things, cucumbers and, and peppers in particular, just hate having their roots messed with in any way at all. They just pout and pout and pout. Cool. I was curious oh. about that solo cup challenge in aquaponics. <laughs> it's bringing up root pruning because that would, you know, I've got the CBD strain, my, the stalks on the CBD strain get bigger than a solo cup. <laughs> but the roots just don't in the aquaponics. I don't get any roots at all. It's just amazing. So that's an interesting angle. The guy told me that if I did that, it's just all a matter of the roots have to stay within the cup. But all you'd have to do is spin the cup, you know, every other day to keep the roots from growing up. 
right? I don't yeah. think it'd be a problem. I think I could grow a monster plant out. So no, just only... just spin it back and forth. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. right, you just trellis it with the so you could spin the trellis thing. Same time. Yeah. That lifted, I think two inch PVC. You can solo couple slide right down inside of it. So. Will it? Man, that would. I tell you what, man. It's a shame Mr. Green Jeans isn't here because you want somebody <laughs> that could give you a good run for money. That that man's been breeding and and Starbucks cups for. Yes. Uh, the better part of three decades. <laughs> solo cup challenge. I'm just gonna step out. Cause... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he's in it, I'm just gonna. <laughs> yeah. Be, yeah. That guy yeah. grows shit in some small ass pots. Cause that's funny. Yeah. I, and and he's a big like, uh, he's he's really big on like not doing much for your plants. Like he. He doesn't think they should be pruned very much. He doesn't think you should mess with them very much. He doesn't think that you, you know, that they need a lot. He could, uh, we started talking about over gardening or overfeeding, uh-huh. you know, all these different things. And, and he, his his approach is much more hands off than most gardeners, let's say. And uh-huh. uh, he gets some crazy results in small pots. And and I'm sure a lot of that goes to you know his attention that he pays to his breeding stock. Uh, yeah. For sure. So that's a that's a great example of, of you know certain genetics being exceedingly good at certain things. So like you were talking about the genetics you have, not necessarily producing a lot of water roots. Um, you know that's probably some kind of adaptation it had in, in the wild, right, to its environment. You know, right. <laughs> interesting stuff. Though. Oh yeah. Alrighty, well, uh, I think we'll wrap things up. Uh, Robbie, do you want to tell everybody how to find you if they want to follow you more? Uh, I can pull up your Instagram if you don't remember. Yeah, go ahead there, Maratomato. Dot farm. Yeah. So what? What's your? Uh, trying to pull it up here, but apparently there it is. So is uh, it's uh, Maratoma. Uh, Murray Tomato Farm, M A R I T O M A T O dot farm. Yeah. On Instagram, if you want to follow more about his farm. And there should be a website and everything to that, too. My kids have been messing with. So. Yep. It's on there on the description. So check that out. And then, yeah. Uh, Marty, how about you? Yeah. So you can check me out on YouTube um, at AP Meds um, and on Instagram at AP Meds. Patreon at AP Meds, uh, Aquaponic Cannabis Growers Group on Facebook. Uh, definitely check us out there. That's probably uh, probably that and Instagram is probably where I'm most active. But uh, Aquaponic Growers on Facebook. Yeah, Aquaponic Growers on Facebook. Okay. Uh, yeah, the and and if uh, a lot of times it's hard to find it on Facebook. It's the easiest way to find it is go to facebook.com backslash groups backslash ap canna and that'll take it directly to the group join sometimes it'll also be in the description of this video yeah it's also in the description yep okay so you can definitely check that out uh you know or just look me up directly on facebook i get a lot of messages directly that way Um, youtube has messaging comments on my videos um i just posted a video a couple weeks ago maybe a week ago or something like that about the new nets that we were just talking about so i'll continue to post updates on that and another another wrap that i just cut that's what they say smoke two wraps 
can be just one. Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, if you guys have any questions about the wraps or any anything related to growing, uh, just hit me up on there. And be on the lookout for that uh, aquaponic cannabis, or not specifically cannabis, I would say, but uh, aquaponic convention that we have coming up. It's going to be awesome. And Looking forward to it. Oh, I guess I guess he spilled the bean. I thought you already did. <laughs> you did. You were talking about it already. Oh, I was hinting at it. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> more information coming soon. We'll we'll have a separate announcement video and everything. There you go. My bad. <laughs> anyway, Stone or fail. That's all right. It's all good. That's the stuff <laughs> I got going on, working on. Um, I have a couple of outdoor plants and a little outdoor system. Maybe we'll take a look at that uh, next week. But yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. I uh, have some new projects I'm working on in a couple, actually a bunch of different ways um, across a bunch of different states, which is kind of cool. Uh, but uh, more information on that here in a couple of weeks. Uh, I have a bunch of cool new things that will be coming online next month uh, in August, which I'm super excited for. I am uh, in the process of house hunting, which is cool. Getting a little more settled than I have been in a while, which is awesome. Uh, and then, um, other than that, uh, if you guys need help with your aquaponics facility, uh, you can go out go over to trueaquaponics.com. Uh, you can find nutrients there if you need individual nutrients, or uh, you can sign up for the subscription service and let us do all the testing and nutrient doses for you. Um, so, if you need that for your vegetable or cannabis farm, we can absolutely take care of all your nutrient dosing needs. Uh, for one flat price and uh, an easy tear open, pour in your sump and forget that it exists in the package. So uh, check that out uh, if it's something you're in need of. Other than that, uh, check out information about the, uh, the event we have coming up in October. And we'll have a, a separate announcement video with that with a whole bunch of cool people. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll see you guys again next week with more aquaponic cannabis content. Thanks a lot for joining us. Cheers. Thanks.